Please turn with me your Bibles to the book of James. Be in James chapter 5. Be in verses 1 through 6. Kids, in the Bibles that we have given you, or if you grabbed a Bible on the back page, back table, uh, that can be found on page 1013. Also, uh, there are uh, listening guides, uh, both for kids and adults, with the sermon points on the back table. Uh, they're on one side or the other. So uh, if you got one, you got both. So um, um, <clears throat> you'll be helped to have that if you would like. Let's read the passage and then I will um, make a few introductory comments. James chapter 5, verse 1. This is God's word. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. So, who's the audience? That seems to be the big question in the commentaries. Who is the audience? Who is James talking to? Some say it's addressed to non-believers that you see in the section before where he's talking about, um, you know, he's talking about about uh, presuming upon the Lord. But he gives instruction there and he gives them instead of don't do this. Instead, you ought to do this. And then in the next section, Lord willing, that we'll see next week in verse seven, he's talking about brothers. And so they're like, so you've got. These kind of bookends, and then in the middle, this must be talking to non-believers. Other people say that he's talking to non-believers because he's pronouncing judgment upon them with no possibility of repentance. There's no call to turn. There's no option for repentance here at all. And even if you were pronouncing judgment on a group of uh, Christians, you would call them right to repentance. This is accusation after accusation. We see a similarity, as I said, in our passage this week to what we saw last week. So um, this come now, today or tomorrow, we'll say you who say we'll go in such such a place and then come now, you rich, uh, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This this is tied together in some way. But I think the reason anyone would ask, okay, to whom is is James speaking here? Normally, when that question is asked, it's, okay, do I have to listen or can I just turn off my brain and go, yeah, okay, this is talking about someone else. But we must remember that this is a continuation of a letter. It's a continuation of a letter that began by saying, by James addressing it to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The people of God built upon a promise and a purpose who are considered to be brothers and sisters, the family of God. 
And so I think this letter is written to Christians, obviously. And so this passage is written to Christians. Okay, and so if this passage is written to Christians, then why is this passage so definitive and decisive and conclusive in its judgments? Because there are always people who appear to be in the family or in the church who are not part of the family. And if we consider James's assumed purpose, original assumed purpose, as we talked about in the beginning of our study of this letter, as one commentator put it, his purpose was to address the church that is in the world in such a way that it keeps the world out of the church. And so if that's James's motive and his purpose in the beginning, that it's entirely appropriate to have this section in a letter to believers. <clears throat> James sees a problem. He sees a problem in the church. And the problem is not that there are rich people in the church. That's not the issue. Rather, he's concerned that he sees people in the church trusting in riches rather than in Christ. It's important that we hear this message because judgment is coming upon those who are found trusting in anything other than Christ. I'm reminded of Ephesians 5, 5 through 7 that says, For of this you may be sure, for everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or greedy, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things as these, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. If wrath is coming on this kind of behavior, if God is judging this kind of behavior, don't partner with people who are doing that behavior. If God is going to judge people who are doing this, don't do it. And so we acknowledge that this passage is written to the brothers and sisters. It's written to the family of God. But the next question we, we may ask is, okay, who are the rich? That's an easy question to answer. The rich are anyone is anyone who has more money than you do, right? <laughs> Those are the rich people. Now, we could spend a lot of time here, and I could go on and on about how we're the richest country in the history of the world and how Christians in America have more money than Christians anywhere else in the world. And all of that would be true, but that doesn't help us today. The reality is, is that we don't have to be rich to struggle with trusting in riches and possessions. As a matter of fact, we may actually be more obsessed with getting it and more fooled into thinking that riches are the answer for us. Therefore, I would suggest that the question who's rich is the wrong question to ask. The question we need to ask today is the same question that Jesus asks in Luke 8. Who are my brothers and sisters? And Jesus answered, my brother and my mother and my sister is the one who hears the word of God and who does it. So that is the question before us today. Will we hear the word of God and will we lay aside our justification and our rationalization and will we allow the Lord to address our hearts and our motives? The first thing I'd like for us to see in our passage today in verses 1 through 3 is that trusting in riches will prove futile on the last day. 
Trusting in riches will prove futile on the last day. James invites us to sit in on the last day for the man who trusted in wealth. It will be a day of weeping and howling and wailing, a day of deep, dark misery. And we would do do well to think long and hard about the reality of that day. James serves us in verses 1 through 3 by pointing out two things to us. The first one is, is that you can be blind to the insufficiency of riches until it's too late. You can be blind to the insufficiency of riches until it's too late. We see that there in your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. We don't see things as they truly are. No one would cherish a pile of rubbish. No one would cherish a closet full of moth-eaten garments. Because they don't see them that way. They don't understand that that's the reality of their thing that they're trusting in. The one trusting in wealth doesn't believe that to be the case. They believe that what they have is of utmost worth. But when it comes time for you to rely on it, it's revealed for what it is. I'm reminded of a of uh, an uh, an instance within the last year um, in my life. I don't wear suits much anymore. Um, I have my so I have my go-to suit, right? Uh, trusting that it's always available, it will always do the trick. And now I may have to try on the pants every now and then to make sure they haven't shrunk. But uh, um, but but anyway. You check it and you go, yep, it's ready to go. It's there whenever I need it. Don't think about it again. So Heather and I, we had to go to some event in the last six months, eight months. And uh, and so I'm like, yeah, no problem. I put my suit on and looking good. I'm feeling good. Yep, everything's normal. Everything's good. Until we sit down at the table and Heather looks at me and she goes, oh, John. And she's like, there are holes all in the back of your suit coat. The the moths had gotten to it. Now, I had no indication that anything was wrong. Not a hint. There were no signs when I opened the closet of moths flying out and hear the sound of chomping cloth in the background. There was no indication that anything was wrong. It looked great sitting there on the rack in my closet. Always there, right in front of time, right in front of me, until it came time to rely on it, and then I'm found trusting in a moth-eaten garment. It was humiliating. Another instant, I went hunting a few years ago and killed a deer, and we had a bunch of sausage and, and stuff made, and the freezer was full. This will be great. We'll always have we'll always have meat. Everything is good, you know? And so we ate from it, and we gave it away, and things were good, and we had a freezer full of meat. Come what may, everything is fine. And so I pull into the garage after taking the kids to school, and I think, oh, we'll have backstrap for dinner tonight. No problem. And I reach in there, and I open the deep freeze, And all of a sudden, a waft of warm air and the funk of 40,000 years hits my nostrils at exactly the same time. The freezer was unplugged. 
had no idea how long it had been that way, had no idea how long that meat had been spoiled, but it had been spoiled before that instant. It looked good from the outside. The futility of my trust was invisible to me in that instant. But when it came time to trust in it, to cash it in, it was found rotten. We can be ignorant of the insufficiency of riches until it's too late. But we have warnings on this from Scripture, don't we? We've read in Ecclesiastes that riches and possessions are not going to protect us on the final day. And all the money in the world will not prolong our lives for one single hour on the day of death. Jesus speaks to this specifically in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. And, and I think that there are a lot of similarities between our passage here and what we see in Matthew 6. But in 6:19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where most, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a certainty. On the last day, you will find your riches wanting. And it doesn't have to be riches. It can be possessions. It can be status. It can be reputation. It can be power. It can be position. It can be title. Whatever it is, on the final day when you stand before the Lord and you pull out whatever you're trusting in, Other than Christ and the pleasure of God, it will be a deeply disappointing day full of weeping and howling. What are you trusting in? What is your hope? One way to get after this is to ask a question that I've asked before. Fill in the blank. If only this, then, then I would be satisfied. If you can answer that question with anything other than the work of Christ on your heart and in your affections, you will be found wanting on the final day. Allow your imagination to smell that freezer opening. Now apply that to your life's work and realize that that stench is in God's nostrils as he looks on you on the final day. He recoils at the smell of the priorities of your life. Secondly, in this section, we see um, that God will hold you accountable for how you use, how you misuse, how you disuse what he's given you. God will hold you accountable for how you use what he has given you. It says here in verse 3 that your gold and silver have corroded. The picture here is that it just sat. It just sat for a long time and it hasn't been used. Again, this is the big theme in our study of Ecclesiastes, right? Hoarding riches is of no value. They offer you no protection because you don't know the day or the hour. You haven't employed what God has given you. It's the parable of the talents. You've taken your gold and you've buried it. You've saved for a rainy day, saving for retirement so that you can live a more luxurious life than you live now. But that is boasting about tomorrow. And we don't know if tomorrow will come for us. You may say, ah, yes, but I'm just being responsible. After all, Jesus finds fault with the Pharisees for not knowing the 
for knowing the, the, the days and the seasons, knowing, uh, you know, red sky and morning, sailors take warning. You know, they know all that, but they don't know how to interpret the sign of the times. I can look at the future and I see the sign of the times. I see what's coming and it's best for us to prepare to save up for that. We read in the Gospels how the virgins uh, have come, have, who have enough oil for the day of the Lord are the ones that the Lord welcomes in and not the ones who are, who are trying to buy oil at the last minute to trim their lamps. I get that. But one thing, in that virgin's passage, it's not talking about saving up money or saving up oil for that day. It's saying, be mindful that that day is coming. Be prepared for that day. It'll come when we least expect it. Are we faithfully ready? Are we storing up? Are we counting on the right thing? Do we have faith in our hearts on that final day? It'll be too late to find faith. It'll be too late to trust in Jesus on that final day. And what will we be found trusting when the Lord knocks on, when the master knocks on the door? But here in our passage here, gold and silver is corroded because it just sat there. It hasn't benefited anyone. You're trusting in it, and when you go get it, you'll find it corroded. That it's it's slowly being eaten away. It's slowly being devoured, and that will be a judgment against you, its owner. It'll be a judgment against your riches, and it's also a judgment against you. It'll be a picture of what's happening, and it is certain to happen. It's already happening. You will be devoured and judgment will eat your flesh like fire, James says there in verse 3. Instead, James seems to be echoing Jesus' attitude in our New Testament reading. You see the end coming. So go employ your resources toward that end. Help others. Be a shrewd manager. Use your wealth here to store up treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy. Where thieves do not break in and steal. The days are short. Your opportunities to expend earthly riches for heavenly gain are dwindling. If you know the days, then spiritually plan for them. Rather than materially planning for them. Give. Help others in need. Give so that more people may hear the gospel. Because you know that the days are short. Now, does this mean we don't save? Not at all. No. We're talking about what we are trusting in. If we're trusting in Christ, we see the resources that the Lord gives as a tool to glorify him. Sure, we use them on ourselves as well. But if we aren't generous towards others, then we may be found trusting in our riches. Are you aware of how generous God has been with you? Does that translate in generosity Towards others, both institutionally and giving to the church and other charities, as well as individuals. Individuals in need here or in in uh, or in our lives who we who we suspect are in a bind. Are you spiritually in tune enough to suspect or anticipate the needs around you? Do you act on them? If not, What reasoning do you give yourself for not doing so? And you're praying for other people. And you're praying for the brothers and sisters in our church. 
Ask the Lord to show you what needs they may have and how you may provide for them. It may not be money. It may be a word of courage, it may, uh, encouragement. It may be um, 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 a, a word of, uh, of counsel or advice or rebuke or, or admonishment. But as you are praying, ask the Lord to reveal to you the needs of others. In verses 4 through 6, we see our second major point of the sermon. And that is our actions now give insight to where our trust is placed. Our actions now give insight to where our trust is placed. In James 4, in James 5, 4, like a prophet, James is calling the people who have placed their trust in riches to weep and howl because of money. The wages that they owe other people hasn't been paid, and that to uh, and now it's crying out. The wages themselves are crying out to the Lord of Hosts. Not only that, but those who have been defrauded, those who have their pay, who their pay and their wages have been withheld, like the harvesters. That their cry is crying out to the Lord of Hosts, and the Lord of Hosts is about to act. What's the point here? point is if we are trusting in things other than Christ it will be revealed in how we treat others it will be revealed in how we treat others if we supremely value money and we have placed our trust in it that doesn't exist in a vacuum that has an impact on other areas of our lives it causes us to hold back from others what they are owed we look to defraud or not to pay the wage a worker is worth because we need to hold on to that money that's important but it doesn't have to be money either if you trust in power or position then you're not going to give those around you the credit that they deserve you're going to want to keep them in their place and you're going to want to do everything in your power to make them understand that they are subordinate to you and you're going to make sure that they remain below you you will keep raising the bar of expectations to sure that they never meet your standard because that would require you to give credit and in your world all is a zero-sum game someone else is being elevated that means that you are being lowered and that can't happen because your value above all is your perceived position of power Back to the workers' wages and what's being owed. I always thought that this section was kind of crazy because it's kind of a straw man. I mean, this doesn't really happen. Until I was reading this exact verse several years ago, back when we had our old house, we had a yard guy. We had gone on vacation, and while we were gone, the yard guy mowed. And I didn't leave any money for him. And we came back, and I recognized, oh, okay, he's mowed. Oh, I owe him money. Well... He's going to be here in five or six days. I'll just hold off and I'll pay him then. You know, I'll just pay him twice on that, you know, in a week. And then I read this verse the next day. After I thought that, I read this verse. And it, and it, I realized, okay, this guy employs three or four or five people. And I'm going to float, I'm going to ask him to float me money. He, when he's paying other people, he's relying on that. They're relying on that. 
And so I got in my car, closed my Bible. I got in my car and I drove around the neighborhood and I found him, paid him and asked for forgiveness and, and gave him his money. And, and I realized that it was wrong. And that action and that passage changed the way I looked at them and every other person that works for us. I realized that they are, it's not just a transactional relationship. It's a relationship. And they're people and they have needs. And it's a consideration that, that moved my interaction with others. And it's all because of this passage. It loosened my heart and my attitude toward them. It doesn't have to be about yard guys or employees. How about paying what you owe the government? It's a signal. If you're not paying what you duly owe other people, whether it's a debt to a friend or taxes or whatever, it's a signal that you may be trusting in something other than Christ. And God, the Lord of hosts, sees it. The money or credit or respect owed itself cries out to the Lord, asking for him to act. And the people themselves that you're holding back what is owed are heard by the Lord. As an aside here, if you're on the other end, if you're on the business end of that, if you're a person who has been defrauded, if you're a person who feels manipulated or bullied or oppressed or discredited and you feel helpless or powerless, feel powerless to do anything about it at all, Cry out to the Lord of hosts. He hears your cries. Be encouraged. Be comforted. It's not on you. You don't have to wrong this right. The Lord of hosts sees it, and he will wrong the right. And he will judge them for what they are doing. Entrust yourself to him. Not only will God hear, but God will act on your behalf. This enables you to still submit to to people and treat them with respect. Uh, that with the respect that their position deserves, regardless of how they treat you. Because in doing so, you'll heap burning coals on their heads. You don't have to right this wrong. The Lord will do it. Secondly, in this section here, we see that, that um, if we are trusting in riches, oftentimes our lives will give evidence of a commitment to indulgence. If we're trusting in riches, our lives will look indulgent. This is kind of the other side of the Ecclesiastes coin. You trust in riches, so that can be manifest in two ways. One, you can never spend a dime and look like Ebenezer Scrooge. Or you can trust in riches and be manifest in living a hell-bent life like uh, uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous with Robin Leach. Both are the same thing, trusting in riches. It's this latter one that we're talking about here, living a life of indulgence, living a life of luxury. Again, what's the definition of luxury? That's simple. One level above the way you're living, right? One person's luxury may be another person's daily practice. There's no set definition what luxury is. What is self-indulgence? This is why the Holy Spirit is such a blessing to us. For we can lean on him and he reveals our hearts. He reveals what is right and what's excessive. There is never a solid line. The Christian life is one lived in tension and examination. 
self-examination and allowing the, the word to have its effect on our actions and our affections. And asking for help from brothers and sisters in the church to, in hearing their perspective. We would be well served to have the attitude of David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And if we respond to what the Lord reveals, then that is a good indication that we are trusting in Christ. But if we aren't willing to pray prayers like this or nor to act on them, nor be still and silent long enough for the Lord to reveal our hearts, we've got a problem. And the problem is right here in the text in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your, fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So if you just blow past the warnings of the Lord and continue to pursue a life of self-indulgence, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The image that's come to mind all week for me is um, a gross one. Um, um, it's like uh, duck and goose foie gras, where um, foie gras is goose liver or duck liver. And the way that they make that is basically they jam a pipe down a duck's throat and force feed them a couple of times a day, up to two and a half pounds of food a day into a duck. And they do it, it's more like three and a half pounds for a goose every day for weeks on end where they just jam them full of food. And so their livers just basically explode. They're so full of fat and they're gross and they, they, then they harv- they kill them and they harvest their livers. And this is a delicacy. This, this is a rich delicacy. There are foie gras operations that aren't force fed, but it's really the same. They just put you in a small pen and they just throw, throw all kinds of acorns and stuff in there and just allow them just to go unchecked, just gorge, gouge, uh, gorge themselves on this day after day. The picture here is if you are self-indulging, you have taken the pipe yourself and you have jammed it down your own throat. And you've called it luxury. You live for the pipe day after day and you call it pleasure. And you serve it. Yet you're in a cage. And you're fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter. 1 Timothy 5, 6 says, But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Really, is this the life you want? What's the end of your indulgence? What purpose will it truly serve? You may think, oh, but I mean, I don't do this alone. That would be awful, you know, just lonely, just just spending it all on myself. No, I mean, I spend it on other people, too. I allow them to be indulgent with me. I invite others. You're just introducing someone else to the pipe. You take turns jamming the pipe of indulgence down each other's throats. It doesn't change the outcome. You just recruited someone else to the slaughter. Misery loves company. These choices have consequences. And God will judge you for this. Stop trusting in the things of this world. 
for your satisfaction and your contentment. Lastly, if we're trusting in riches or in power or position, it will be revealed in how we deal with opposition. See that in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The rich and powerful don't deal well with barriers. They knock them down. Anything that gets in their way, they remove it. The old saying, the train is leaving the station. Be on it or under it. Here it seems is a picture of people who have taken principled or morally informed stands against the powerful and are who are condemned and eliminated or removed. Here, they're murdered. My mind immediately goes to several places. The first one is John the Baptist, right? He told Herod that it was not right for him to have his brother's wife as his wife. It was an inconvenience for Herodias and Herod to have someone speaking this way, and so they threw him in prison. And then as a true act, as a, as a, as a, as a picture of unmatchable wealth and unencumbered power, Herod says to Herodias' daughter, whatever you want, I'll give to you. Just up to half my kingdom, whatever you want. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I think of Psalm 73 where those who are rich and powerful scoff at opposition. It says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Psalm 73 gives the impression of a life with that's just a series of unbroken green lights. No problems, no opposition. If we live lives of no opposition or never any brake tapping in our lives, we can be fooled into thinking that we must be pleasing to God. We must be doing everything right. He's not resisting me, therefore he must be pleased. When in fact, maybe he's allowing you to set yourself up for the slaughter. How do you deal with opposition? How do you deal with challenges to your authority? How do you deal with things when they don't go, you don't get your way at home or at the office? God's kindness is often best revealed in the way that he challenges us in our confidence. The ways that he stops us from pursuing that thing that is right in front of us for the taking. The ways that he humiliates us. The ways that he tears down our empires. We desperately need the Lord to interrupt us in our pursuits that are opposed to his glory. Because we're doomed and we're destined for eternal disaster apart from his gracious work. Our pursuit of riches and its consequences can be so subtle and principled. As I read verse 6, I'm reminded of one other occasion in Mark 14, where a woman came with the most expensive possession she had, an alabaster flask full of pure nard perfume. 
And she broke it and poured it over the head of Jesus. And the 12 disciples scolded her that she wasted that wealth. It could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And yet Jesus told them she has done a beautiful thing. For whenever this gospel is proclaimed, her story will be told. Well, the very next verse after that in Mark 14, 10, says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. He'd sin enough. The senseless waste of wealth was just too much to bear any longer. So he offers to condemn Jesus and turn him over to the priest for 30 pieces of silver. The righteous one, the righteous person was condemned and murdered. He did not resist. He freely offered up his life. He lived, in a, he lived a perfect life that never struggled with misplaced priorities of wealth or possessions. He lived perfectly for the glory of God continually and perfectly relying on his father for all his needs. And he freely gave his life for sinners like you and me, for people who hear these words and who will turn from our trust in riches and possessions and power and pleasure and ease and trust in Christ's righteousness for his atoning death for our sins. And he was raised as proof that the penalty for your sins has been paid. And he reigns over all in heaven now. And he has sent us a helper the Holy Spirit, to live within us, to speak to us, and to help us care for others and serve Christ through what he has graciously given us. And he speaks to us through his word and convicts us of our sins and reveals to us our hearts through passages and sermons like this. And so, brothers and sisters, the question before us isn't who are the rich or who are the powerful? question before us is the one that Jesus asked. Who are my brothers and sisters? The one who hears the word of God, responds to it, turns from their idolatry, repenting and trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to search us and know us Try us and know our thoughts. Please see if there be any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.